Good morning, church. When Warren first asked me to preach from our summer study on the book of Proverbs, my first thought was, how do you begin to preach an expository sermon from the book of Proverbs? Couldn't I get like a nice parable? <laughs> then I remembered the very first gift my dear bride ever gave me was this little Bible, and inside the front cover, she had written Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make straight your paths. It's a genuine joy these many years later that God's path for me included bringing this message to us this morning from that same book of Proverbs. As I approached today's text, I wanted to be really careful not to just tell some moral story and, and then sort of tack Jesus on at the end like some kind of weird religious appendix. No, instead, my prayer is that we'll see Christ throughout this message and better understand our relationship with Him because of it. As Warren has stated in his sermons on Proverbs already this summer, Christ is the very wisdom of God incarnate. We study Proverbs not to learn platitudes, but to know Christ better and to be better equipped to make Him known. So I thank the session, I thank Warren for this opportunity. We've got a lot of ground to cover, so let's read from Proverbs chapter 9. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. She has slaughtered her beasts. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has sent out her young women to call from the highest places in the town. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. To him who lacks sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine I have mixed. Leave your simple ways and live and walk in the way of insight. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse, and he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Do not reprove a scoffer, or he will hate you. Reprove a wise man, and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be still wiser. Teach a righteous man, and he will increase in learning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. For by me your days will be multiplied, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for yourself. If you scoff, you alone will bear it. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Would you join me in prayer and then we'll dive into these invitations to two very different feasts. Heavenly Father, you tell us that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. You tell us it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of our heart. God, we have lived lives that have been changed because of the way your word has affected our hearts and our minds. Lord, that's how you use your word. We ask this morning that you would do that again that you would use your word to encourage our hearts, to convict us, to grow us, to save us. May we hear rightly from the author and perfecter of our faith. Spirit, make us as we ought to be. We expect the grace that you alone can give, Father, because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we look at the ninth chapter of Proverbs here, a little orientation, a little reminder. We're just now nearing the, the end of the introduction 
the on-ramp to the actual wisdom sayings called Proverbs. Solomon has spent the first nine chapters presenting the case for each of us to choose wisdom or to choose foolishness. The Proverbs that follow are presented with an understanding, an assumption that we've made that choice to choose wisdom. It's made with the, the understanding that the argument has been won, that choosing wisdom is the only real choice. It leads to life, whereas folly leads to death. Solomon makes the case that we are each of us involved every day in a life and death struggle between righteousness and sinfulness, foolishness and wisdom. As we've studied Proverbs this summer, we've learned that in the Bible, in the Hebrew language, this fear of the Lord means delight and awe and reverence. 2 Corinthians 5 is a New Testament passage that touches on that same theme. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Listen, friends, there is nothing winsome or persuasive about some simpering, cowering victim of fear. No, we, we are persuasive when we delight in and live in awe of the greatness of our God. Married folks, I want you to think back to that uh, early days of marriage, that first holiday season. Was there any stress around that season? Maybe sometimes there still is. I grew up about five miles from here. My wife, Dee Dee, grew up about 75 miles east of here in Tarboro, North Carolina. Now, there are many blessings that come from living near where you grew up. But there are also occasions that many young married folks can identify with where there's some stress related to that. Now, my dad is here, so I want to be very careful to say <laughs> that our perception was rightly or probably wrongly, but our perception was that we were invited simultaneously to be two different places at the same time. Where will we spend the holiday? Didi and I have promised ourselves that we would not put our own children through what we felt like we were put through. But I gotta tell you, it's tough. As our children are old enough now that they're getting married it's difficult. We love them. We enjoy them. We want to spend those moments with them. I am confident that Didi and I would say that we do a very good job of not exerting that kind of pressure on our own children. And I am equally confident that they are already promising themselves not to do to their kids what we are doing to them. <laughs> I believe the author of Proverbs has that same kind of tension in mind about these two banquets in chapter 9. Solomon is wrapping up his introduction by saying, you have to make a choice. A decision time has come. He does this with an illustration of two feasts. One will help you and one will hurt you. Every one of us, according to Scripture, is simultaneously invited to contrasting banquets. And every one of us decides to primarily feast at one or the other. You can tell which one you primarily dine at by how you're living or how you're dying. My favorite movie is Shawshank Redemption. Uh, in this movie, there's a famous scene. The protagonist, Andy Dufresne, is talking to his friend Red. If you haven't seen the movie, Andy and Red are both prisoners in Shawshank Prison. And before you go see the movie, check with me first um, for maybe a little guidance. 
in this scene, Andy looks at Red and he says, it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living or get busy dying. We face that same choice every day. So let's look at the two invitations and then at the responses that come from each of us. First, the invitations. And right away we meet Lady Wisdom and we'll ask four quick questions about her. Who is this hostess? Look at verse 1. Wisdom has built her house and she has hewn out its seven pillars. Wisdom is personified as a woman, Lady Wisdom. And in that day, in that culture and society, that alone makes her an unlikely architect. And, And what a home she has built. Today, if we ask Matt Peden about a house that has eight bedrooms and six bathrooms and a pool, the numbers alone suggest to us grandeur. This is a palace. In that time, to say a home had seven pillars carried that same sense of magnitude. Even the word the author uses for built implies craftsmanship. This was not just a big house. This was a parade of homes showplace. To, to, to even be invited to a place like this carried with it a sense of gravity. So the second question is, where are we invited? To that home, to that mansion. In those days, for ordinary common folk to receive an invitation like that to a home as remarkable as that was practically unheard of. It may not be the equivalent of me getting invited to a White House dinner, but, but the cultural divide between the elite and the common was enormous. Third question, what's on the menu? It says that she has prepared her meat and mixed her wine. The Hebrew literally says that she slaughtered the meat. In other words, she didn't order takeout. She sacrificed from her own flock. And to do that for common folk was amazing. The author seems to want us to understand that this will be a meal unlike any other. It's going to be filled with a kind of a richness and satisfaction that ordinary folk may not even have dreamed of, maybe have only hungered for all their lives. And and I don't want us to miss, she's the one who sets the table. She doesn't have her servants do it. This whole thing is very personal. It's a gift from her to her guests, personally prepared and delivered. As our children have all grown up and gone off to college, Dee Dee's taken great care to always prepare for them their favorite meals when they come home. And she keeps up with which ones love seafood, which ones love pasta, which ones love pumpkin muffins with chocolate chips. Now, do our children sit around and marvel at the time and the energy and the effort that their mother puts into even something as mundane as breakfast muffins? No, of course not. And that's not the point. She doesn't do it for that. She does it because she loves them. These guests at this banquet likely spent very little time thinking about the table setting. But even that small act of service matters. She insists on doing it herself. When you love someone, you look for ways to show that love in great ways and in small ways. Because they all matter. They're all part of an entire narrative of love and servant-heartedness. If you think about your favorite dish, once it's been cooked and prepared, you likely can't identify every ingredient individually. But if you forget one, if you leave out that particular teaspoon, the whole dish just isn't as good. Fourth question, 
how and, and really to what does she invite us? She and her assistants on her behalf, and that's important, her assistants, call to us from the high points of the city and they say basically four things. Come in, eat fully, leave behind, and walk well. She says come in. Here we have this unlikely builder of an almost royal palace inviting simple folks to a feast we could only dream of. One side note, was there a fee for this dinner? Did she ask them to repay her? Well, to suggest that they could have offered anything of value to repay it is absurd. Of course not. Does this remind us of anyone or anything else? Another unlikely builder, Jesus, invites common folks like us to a royal banquet in his mansion where he prepares a place for us personally, where he alone has made sacrifice for us forever. And like the hostess in the Proverbs story, Jesus never asks you to pay for this gift. When Martin Luther was asked, what did you contribute to your salvation? What, what did you pay for your salvation? Replied, sin and resistance. He had nothing of value to offer. Jonathan Edwards asked the same question, said, only the sin that made it necessary. We cannot begin to repay this gift. The hostess says, come in. Christ also says, come in. And in fact, he does what the hostess in our story cannot or would not. Jesus says that while he prepares a mansion for us in glory, before that blessed event, he longs to come to you and dine with you in your home. Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone should hear my voice and open the door, then I will come in to him and dine with that person and they with me. Jesus is the fulfillment of this proverb, doing what even the hostess could not. So have you come in? I'm not asking if you've come into a building, if you've come into this. I'm asking, have you sat in communion with Christ? So come in. Second, she says, eat fully. Dig in is the connotation. Enjoy. Don't just begin a relationship with Christ. As Christian, we've, we've been made to live in fullness. That means that it's possible to become a Christian and not really dig in. I, I mentioned Dee Dee's from Tarboro. In eastern North Carolina, they have a saying, before a really big meal, the host or hostess will look at the folks gathered and say, y'all take out and help yourself. That's what we're invited to do. That's what Scripture repeatedly encourages and admonishes us to do. Really savor all that God has to offer. Psalm 34, 8, taste and see that the Lord is good. 1 John 1 goes even further. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have gazed upon and touched with our own hands, this is the word of life. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We're not invited to simply eat some food. John says, look, touch, hear, experience all of it. All of the banquet, all of the host, the setting, the music, all of it. Take out and help yourself and enjoy all that the host offers. Feast on God's grace. Do you find times where you're spiritually empty? I do. I have. These last few years, Dee Dee and I have walked through some really hard things. Roads that were more difficult than we dreamt we would ever walk. 
I have been spiritually empty. If you feel yourself going there, if you feel that tank emptying, I beg you to stop and feast on the goodness of God Almighty. Dine on His Word. Engage in conversation with Abba Father via prayer. Fellowship with believers. Eat and pray and cry with the saints. Serve others. Take out and help yourself and experience all that you're offered. Listen, I can fake talking and saying that God is good and I'm okay. We cannot fake tasting and seeing. We are either really being fed by Him, really being nourished by Him, or we are not. Get busy living or get busy dying. So, come in, eat fully, and then in verse 6, leave behind. Leave what? Leave your simple ways. You will never actually leave foolishness behind without ingesting the reality of Christianity. And then you can experience the fullness that allows you to say no to folly. Look, look, all of us have a sin nature that makes us inclined to folly. That classic Reformed saying, we are not sinners because we sin, we sin because we are first sinners. For us to choose wisdom is contrary to our sin nature. And it's why the author here has spent almost nine chapters just making the case for choosing wisdom. Original sin and total depravity say that we have a bias toward folly. Knowing the right thing is not necessarily enough for us to always choose the right thing. You think of Paul in Romans 7 as he battles that inner brokenness. So Lady Wisdom says, leave behind foolish sin as you ingest wisdom. And now the fourth piece of the invitation, also in verse 6, is to walk well. Walk in the way of insight. In other words, live as someone walking in the way of understanding. In Romans 9, Paul quotes Isaiah when he says, As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Apart from the Holy Spirit giving you understanding, Christianity almost doesn't even make any sense. An eternal king is promised. We get a lowly carpenter who never aspires to riches or a crown. His earthly lineage includes prostitutes and thieves. He has a chosen people and he makes the message of salvation open to everyone. The creator of the universe says, I have a mansion for you in glory and now I'm going to wash your feet. Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by him. Christ is a stumbling block until the Spirit saves your soul and opens your mind to understand. Until you come in and dine on all that Christ offers, until you come into relationship with Christ and eat of him and take in his truth and feast on grace, so you can leave behind folly and say, now I begin to understand. Now I can begin to walk well and live. So, as the author pivots from wisdom to folly, he reminds us that the fear of the Lord, the delight and awe of the Lord, is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. He reminds us of the point of the story. And so now, we'll pivot, and we'll look at the second invitation from Lady Folly. Who is this hostess? Well, Lady Folly is very different. Notice first that she's not known by what she built, but by what she boasts. 
Verse 13 says that she is unruly. The sense here is of loud, lascivious conduct. Folly is loud. God's word sits quietly and asks us to sit with it and enjoy it and ingest it. Folly cries loudly in our own minds. It screams for our attention and our devotion. Notice that while Lady Wisdom is known by her estate, Lady Folly was known by her words. There's no record of anything she built, only what she said. Also in verse 13, Lady Folly doesn't even understand herself. She is undisciplined and without knowledge. Think about it. Foolishness, sinfulness, never recognizes itself apart from grace. We see around us every day that folly thinks of itself as being sophisticated. There are many examples of the wisdom of the age being shown to be foolish. Much of the wisdom of our age will someday be shown to have been foolish. I'll give you one from a long time ago. It was thought for centuries that in the human body, blood circulated in a circle up one side and down the other. In the early 1600s, a British physician, William Harvey, realized that was incorrect, and he postulated the correct version of blood flow in the human body. And he's been written about in medical textbooks ever since. William Harvey said, all that we know is still infinitely less than that which is unknown. Foolishness never recognizes itself apart from grace. Wisdom realizes it still has a lot to learn. So now we know a little bit more about the second hostess, and the second question is, where is her banquet? Well, it's also in her house. She sits in the door of her house, but unlike the example of Lady Wisdom, here we're told very little about what lies behind the door. Whereas Lady Wisdom has hewn out pillars for her home, folly seems to sit before a false front. Have, have you ever driven into South Carolina and seen the big fireworks stores? And they, that front wall for them is this huge wall that gives a sense of enormity. And, and behind it is this little retail shop. It's a mirage. The, the advertising doesn't match the reality. Brothers and sisters, isn't that like the sin in our lives? It promises so much, but it never actually delivers on what it promises. It's counterfeit. It looks wonderful. The promise of secret delight is at the core of the seduction of sin. Let me say that again. The promise of secret delight is at the core of the seduction of sin. Sin is not tempting because it is rotted and decayed and vile. Sin is tempting because it looks and smells and tastes amazing. It promises, but it never fills, it never satisfies. Sin is a lie. And it's why Satan is called the father of lies. Later in Proverbs, in chapter 25, Solomon says, If you have found honey, eat only enough for you, lest you have your fill of it and vomit. A anyone who knows me knows that I love chocolate. I mean, like, I really love chocolate. If I eat only chocolate to the point of being full, am I nourished? Will it sustain my body? No. And in fact, I'll pay a price for that gluttony. That is the story of all our addictions. Our addictions to money, respect, sex, 
comfort, food, drink, pills. The point is we are all sin addicts, and we need rescue. Sin promises life, a fuller life, a better life, a safer life. It delivers death. Not only does Lady Folly know nothing, passers-by don't seem to know either. No one seems to see what's behind her door, but the author says, I'll tell you what lies behind her door. Death lies through that doorway. Verse 18 says that her guests are dead and deep in the realm of the dead. There are no survivors. Remember the earthquakes in Turkey earlier this year, back in February? Over 55,000 people died in a region called Antakya. In biblical times, that was Antioch, site of the first Gentile church where Paul embarked on his missionary journeys. There came a point after those earthquakes where the officials said, we're no longer looking for survivors, only victims. That is Lady Folly's house. There are no survivors, there are only casualties. So our hostess is known for her words, not what she does. She invites us to her house of death. And the third question, what's on her menu? Verse 17, stolen water is sweet, food eaten in secret is delicious. The contrast here is striking. Wisdom produces the meal herself. Folly doesn't even do her own cooking. In fact, she doesn't even buy the food. She steals it and then exults in the theft. Here's a point. Remember this. Sin and folly are never original. All they can do is take something that is true and counterfeit it. Satan never created. He presents to us a perverted and false view of the reality of God's creation and design. Like wisdom, folly invites us into her home, but she has no assistance to help her in her call. All who go into her are dead. Instead of offering a banquet that she has prepared, folly says, steal that. Derek Kidner, a famed British Old Testament scholar, commenting on verse 17 said, talking of Eve in the garden, Eve had to be convinced that sweetness would survive her stealing in Eden. We have fallen far enough to be persuaded that sweetness depends on stealing. We now seem to believe that for something to be really exciting and really good, it has to be at least a little bit off limits. We we accept as a fact that it needs a little bit of sin to add flavor and spice. So the fourth question, how and to what are we invited here? Well, while the words spoken are similar, let all who are simple come to my house, The invitation to what we're being asked to join is vastly different. Remember, wisdom said, come in, eat fully, leave behind, walk well and live. Folly says, come in, steal that. Eat what you can get away with until you're caught and then join the grave. Rather than asking her guests to leave behind sin and foolishness, folly invites them to join in the lie, join the secrecy and duplicity. Food eaten in secret is pleasant, she says. She invites her guests to create normality out of dishonesty. Let's live double lives, she says. Well, Hebrews 3 warns us against being hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Paul Tripp says that sin blinds us to our own sin. It deceives us into not seeing its destructive nature. And ultimately, we tend to participate in our own deceit about the danger of sin. 
We rewrite the narrative to make ourselves look more righteous than we actually are, or we make ourselves out to be the victim of someone else's even greater sin. And so what happens is we begin to accept our own sin. We make it normal and okay. Whereas wisdom invites us to the inevitable outcome of her banquet, to walk in understanding and life, folly invites us to ingest a lie and remain ignorant of the fact that it leads not to life but to death. Eat a lie and die. Join the grave. One of the great tragedies of sin, beyond the fact that it breaks God's law, and it does, beyond the fact that it breaks God's heart, and it does, one of the tragedies of sin is that it prevents us from much of the goodness and greatness of being fully human. Brothers and sisters, we are created as image bearers of Abba Father, God Almighty, built for grandeur. But when you eat a lie, it eats you. It lessens you. When you take in folly, it erodes your kindness and generosity. It erodes your nobility. It eats away your judgment. It eats away your true beauty. In the fourth chapter of Ecclesiastes, the writer put it perfectly. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. The sin we choose to accept in our lives that we allow to become normalized and okay is akin to willful, inevitable self-destruction. So... Why is this seemingly simple choice so hard? I mean, obviously all of us would choose wisdom, right? Well, at the risk of seeming trite, Satan is crafty and he hates you. He presents folly with enough similarities to wisdom that the choice can become more difficult. Even in our passage today, there are at least three things that are similar. First, they're in similar places in the highest parts of the city. Second, they invite similar guests, those who lack judgment. Finally, they use similar words. Let all who are simple come in here. The author seems to be saying, and here the Bible is really honest, it is often not as easy to see the differences, to know the right path as you would think. As we said before, folly doesn't recognize sin apart from grace. Remember that gift Dee Dee gave me, that Bible, the verses that she had written? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. He will. He longs to do just that. But we often, I often, do trust the Lord, do not trust the Lord with all my heart. I often lean on my own understanding. So what do you do? What do you do? Well, first repent. Enjoy the sweet gift of forgiveness. Second, ask for wisdom. Remember James, he said, if any of you lack wisdom, ask for it, and God who gives generously to all without finding fault will give it. Would you ask? Would you ask God for that gift? Finally, let's look at our response, sort of our RSVP. How can you tell where you've been eating? And this brings up a point. In this story in Proverbs, we're being invited to these two banquets as if they are purely future events. The fact is, every day of your life, you're sitting at one of these tables. Listen, the marriage supper of the Lamb is a future banquet at which every believer will dine and feast. But every day right now you sit at the table of Lady Wisdom or Lady Folly. And you can tell at which table you sit based on the simplicity of this. Are you growing in life or in death? 
When Andy says that famous quote to Red, Red replies a little bit later that he couldn't make it on the outside because he's been in prison so long he's become institutionalized. He doesn't know another way to be. The table of death is like that. It rots you and kills you even as it pretends to feed you. So some quick ways to know where you've been dining. First, it may be a surprising one. You would think that I could tell that I've been sitting at the table of wisdom because I'm smart, that I can offer good counsel. The author here says, no. The test isn't what counsel I can give, but what I do when I'm corrected. It says, do not rebuke a mocker or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Are you correctable? Can anyone, your spouse, your child, your friend, your church leaders, correct you and not receive in return insult and rebuke and wrath or maybe an exit from the church? In fact, did you see how the wise responds? If you rebuke a wise person, they will love you. When was the last time you were corrected and you went, oh, thank you, I love you for that? So the first test, what do you do when you're corrected? Here's a second test to tell you where you most regularly feast. Who or what is the subject of your awe and respect? Is it the Lord of creation or creation itself? What do I mean by that? Well, do you pay more attention in time, in energy, in thought, to the God who made sex or to the sex God made? What captures your inner man or woman? Are you more ardently awestruck by the God who made work or the work God made? Are you moved by the call of God to stewardship and dominion over the things he has given you as an act of worship? Or are you moved by having and controlling more stuff? Where's your focus, the Lord of creation or creation itself? Third question, who do you yearn to know and understand? And who do you yearn to know and understand you? You see it in verse 10, the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. In other words, when you go home, when you're not here, what do you read? What do you really study and give your attention to? When the events of your life, the big ones and the small ones occur, do you innately turn to God in prayer and to his word or to the social media outlet of your choice? One author differentiated this as the holy Lord or the unholy horde. Ultimately, are you becoming more fully alive because of where you dine or are you quietly dying inside? Verses 11 and 12. For through wisdom your days will be many and years added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. If you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. Are your choices remaking you or unmaking you? Jean-Paul Sartre was an existentialist philosopher who got a lot of stuff wrong. But he got this pretty well when he said, we are the choices we make. Our choices should reconstruct us to be more and more like Christ. Are they? Or are they gradually deconstructing your faith and making you just like you. That's why I prayed that God would make us as we ought to be. I do not want to be the version of Tony that dined and sometimes still dines at the table of Lady Folly. That version of me is just infinitely less than the version of me that is redeemed and will be made glorious into the likeness of Christ. I'm an image bearer of God and I pray that he will continue to make that 
reality. And I pray that for you as well. It's a simple choice, really. Get busy living or get busy dying. Every one of us is making one or the other. Your choices are either remaking you with life or unmaking you with death. There's a reason that Jesus, when he described the scribes, described the scribes and Pharisees, called them whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You see, we don't get to choose what is true. We do not get to choose what is true. We only get to choose what to do about it. Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How are we transformed? By the renewal of our minds, by dining with Lady Wisdom, by feasting on God's grace. So, where have you been dining? Have you been sitting at a table that promises to be wonderful, but is a tomb? Or are you feasting at the table of life, taking in all that the Lord has for you? Over 200 years after the Proverbs were written, Isaiah said in Isaiah 25, The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats. By the way, one of the things that strikes me again and again and again about Scripture, written by dozens of authors over multiple continents and multiple languages during a time in which they could not communicate with one another to develop a cohesive storyline, is the common themes that are found throughout. A banquet of aged wine, the best meats. He will swallow death forever. He will wipe away the tears from all faces and remove disgrace from his people from all the earth. This is the Lord. We have trusted in him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Friends, Lady Wisdom is not simply a metaphor. Wisdom has become a real person. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says that Jesus has become our wisdom. So Isaiah's point is that it is the Lord who sets the real banquet, and it is the Lord who serves the best fare. Wisdom himself swallowed death so that we could feast on the life that he alone gives. Christ ate the banquet of the grave so that we could live forever. Let's feast on life. In the movie, Red eventually travels by Trailways bus to join Andy on a beach in Mexico. And he muses, I find I'm so excited I can barely sit still or hold a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. Because Christ died for me and you, we can be free. We can partake in life itself. I'll end with a quote from the prophet Joel. Do not be afraid, land of Judah. Be glad and rejoice. Surely the Lord has done great things. The threshing floors will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the locust swarm that I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat until you are full, and you will praise the name of the Lord your God who has worked wonders for you. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We all call to someone or something. We all sit at a table of life or death. Get busy living or get busy dying. Let's get busy living. Let's call to Christ. Let's feast on grace. Let's be wise. Let's live. Amen.